Who can forget that classic line from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Snow White, of course, was this beautiful young lady who had these little uh, folks running around with her wherever she went. And her evil stepmother, the queen, had this mirror that she had created in which she would go before it every day and conjure up darkness to ask this question. Magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? She knew her stepdaughter was very fair, and she was jealous. And as long as that mirror told her what she wanted to hear, she was fine. But one day, the magic mirror spoke to her and told her that there was one more fair than she. And of course, as you know the story, that sends her off. She becomes livid and begins to hatch a plot to poison her stepdaughter. Well, mirrors are interesting things. They pop up in literature, and they pop up in movies. Uh, We see them at carnivals. Sometimes they give us a very distorted image of what we are like. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with the mirror, but our perception of what we see in it is very distorted. But nevertheless, mirrors are designed to give us an accurate reflection of ourselves. And James is going to use that concept today and apply it to the scriptures. That is, the message of Jesus particularly. And we're going to hear him compare that message of Jesus to a mirror that we can look into to not only hear ourselves in light of the message of Jesus, but to seek to live in light of that as well. So we're going to call our study today Becoming Doers of the Word. And as I mentioned, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 22. So let's pick it up right there. James says, Be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you've read the, uh, the gospel, this, this letter of James before, this is probably one of those things that has stu- stood, uh, stood out to you, and it's, it's memorable. Be, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Remember, in the context of what he's writing, he's speaking about the gospel. As far back as verse 18, he talks about how the word has brought us forth, or how, I'm sorry, how the Lord has brought us forth by the word of truth. He's speaking about that gospel message of Jesus that uh, brought new life into these hearers, who are now followers of Jesus. He instructs them in verse 19 to be quick to hear. And then in verse 21, he talked about receiving with meekness the implanted word. So he's thinking in particular about the gospel message about Jesus, the good news of his life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. And so this is what he's talking about when he says to be doers of the word. In the original language, you can also equally translate this as become doers of the word. In other words, James is calling us to respond to the good news of Jesus with an active spirituality, a faith that works, a faith that produces fruit. And he wants us to to listen to what he's saying here and to put it into practice because it's possible, according to James, that people like you and me can just hear the message of Jesus and not have it affect us. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I wonder if we can hear the echoes of uh, James's older brother, Jesus, in something he said on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus said these words, which, if anyone else said these, would be a little bit crazy. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because... It had been founded on the rock. Jesus continues, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, 
And the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus says to his audience living in that day, and we hear those words echo to us in our day, that if we hear his words and put them into practice, we are like a wise person who builds their house on a strong foundation, on on the rock. But if we don't, we'd be like foolish people who would build their house upon the sand. Now, if I had said something like this to you, (laughs) you might be thinking, John has a really good opinion of himself. If I come to you and say, you're wise if you just listen to what I have to say and, and build your life on what I have to say, right? But Jesus says this. Jesus insists that the only way to rightly receive his teaching is by putting it into practice. It does us no good to listen to what he has to say, as marvelous as that might be, but to not actually do what he says. And so James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's interesting. James wants us to understand that it is entirely possible for you and me to deceive ourselves when it comes to the teachings of Jesus. Remember, he's not writing to those people who are outside the church. He's writing to Christians who had been scattered, who are seeking to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a very difficult condition, in a a very difficult world. But he says, don't deceive yourselves. I looked up a couple other translations The Legacy uh, Standard Bible translates this as as being merely hearers who delude themselves. And the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase, said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. Who wants to fool themselves? Who wants to deceive or delude themselves? I mean, I know you and I can look at other people and say, they're deceived and they're deluded. They're crazy. But it's a little bit harder to see when we're doing it, right? According to James, it is entirely likely that we can deceive ourselves when it comes to our Christianity. And in James' mind, it has everything to do with the difference between merely hearing the teaching of Jesus and actually living it out. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, in his book, his letter to the Romans, confronted some Jews, his fellow kinsmen, with these words. He said, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? James is, I'm sorry, Paul here is getting at the fact that some of the people that he knows, some of his fellow kinsmen, are experts in the word of God. Specifically, the the Torah of the Old Testament, the instruction manual for God's people at that time. And he says, you know what it says, but do you do what it says? I mean, he could go on and on with this list. He could say, you who say that you shouldn't lie, do you lie? You who say that we should give to the poor, do you give to the poor? You who say that we should seek justice for the oppressed, do you seek justice for the oppressed? I mean, he could go on and on and on. Back to James. He says in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word, 
and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. James says if you, if you just listen to what Jesus has to say and you don't actually do it, the effect is, is, is I mean, he gives a kind of a humorous uh, illustration here. It's like someone who just looks intently at the mirror. He sees what needs to be fixed, but he walks away and he doesn't do anything about it. I don't know about you, but I've been known to... I basically look at the mirror in the morning and make sure I'm still alive. <laughs> and see, uh, you know, if, if everything's kind of in decent shape to present myself to the world. But I've been known to look in the mirror and go out with my hair messed up and with toothpaste on my, my beard and wrinkled shirt and collar up. And I, for some reason, I don't see it. But James says, look, if you listen to Jesus but don't do what he says, he's, look, you're like someone who looks intently. I mean, he sees what is wrong. But he doesn't do anything about it, and he just walks away and he forgets. Who wants to be like that? And he says in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's break this down just a little bit here. James talks about the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. What is James doing here? I mean, he's been talking about the word, meaning the gospel, but now he talks about the law, the law of liberty, the perfect law. Some people think that James is referring to what I just mentioned, the Torah of the Old Testament. Um, what's mentioned in Psalm 19 is being like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. For folks who lived back in Jesus' time, as they read the Torah and understood a different way of being human that God wanted them to be apart from these other nations around them, they took great delight in this. They saw this as a, as a beautiful way to live. Do you remember the time when someone came to Jesus and asked him what the greatest command in the Old Testament was, in the Hebrew Scriptures? Jesus responded by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. In other words, love God with everything you've got. That's what the Old Testament law, the Torah, is all about. And Jesus continues and said this, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So if James is speaking about the perfect law being the Torah, Jesus summarized it as being all about loving God and loving other people. I think James is speaking more specifically about the message of Jesus, but we'll get to that in a moment. There was a time, too, in the, time, in, the, in the times of Jesus when a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he points him back and says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So here's a lawyer who is, when we think of the word lawyer, um, we have different connotations. This was a person who was an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of them had it memorized and down pat. And so he comes to Jesus to test Jesus about the contents of it, uh, or ask him about, I'm sorry, ask him about how to receive eternal life. And so Jesus points him back to the law, basically says, what, is it, what does it say? So how would you like it if you got a pop quiz from Jesus about <laughs> the contents of the Old Testament law? That's exactly what this man got from him. And so he answered, this lawyer, 
this expert in the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This little debate about what it means to have eternal life, to be the kind of person who, who belongs in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and this man said, it's all about love. But this, this man wanted to justify himself and said, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> who, do, who do I have to love? I mean, are, are there people who are my neighbors and people who aren't my neighbors? And then Jesus goes on and tells what is probably perhaps his most famous story. You know it as the Good Samaritan. This is a graphic from Gustav Dore, an etching that is um, very well known. It's actually the graphic for our series. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here is a priest and here is a Levite. Both are involved in the worship of the Lord under the old covenant administration. These were people that you would say are men of God. These are people who know what the law says. Presumptively, they know it says you should love other people. But they saw this man who had been deeply injured, fighting for his life. And instead of going and helping him, they ignored him and passed by on the other side. And Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on his, set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. My friends, I cannot communicate how shocking this would have been to the original audience. Jews at that time thought of Samaritans as half-breeds. They had their own temple that they built. They had their own set of worship. They had intermarried with the Gentile nations around them, and they despised them. In fact, Jews had, had traveled north would go way out of the way to not go into their territory. It would be like Jesus, if you were talking about this story today, saying that there were two a Jewish uh, priests and, and Levites who saw this man and, and ignored his plight, but a Palestinian from Gaza saw him and took care of him. I mean, this just would have been scandalous. Those people don't do this kind of thing. And yet Jesus chose to make Samaritan, someone who was despised, as the hero of this story. Jesus goes on and says, the next day he took out two denarii, which was basically a day's wage. Uh, a denarius was a day's wage. He took two days' wages and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Jesus says, if you want to know what the scriptures mean, when they say you ought to love your neighbor as yourself, this is what it means. That even your enemies you treat with kindness and love and self-sacrificing love. Who of us does that perfectly? I mean, every once in a while we might have our moments, but who of us does this all the time? It's interesting, before Jesus had, um, well, he was having his last meal with his disciples right before he was betrayed and crucified, he gave them these instructions. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
I wonder how the disciples kind of heard this. Because he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. And on one level, that's not a new commandment. I mean, that was in the Old Covenant scriptures, right? In fact, Jesus summarized those scriptures as love. But what was new was how Jesus defined it now. You should love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when James is speaking about looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom, he's talking about living in light of Jesus' words. Not just simply what the Old Testament scriptures had pointed to, which is love of God and love of your neighbor, but a love that looks like Jesus loves. We could put it like this. When James speaks of the perfect law, the law of liberty, we need to hear him speaking about the new way of life Jesus taught about, one that is defined by loyal love toward God and sacrificial love toward our neighbors. If we can hear James saying this to us, then we can understand that we are most free when what we want to do is what we are designed to do. (laughs) Summarizing the good news of Jesus as this law or this instruction on liberty, when we run in the path of Jesus' commands, we are most who we are. So James says in verse 25, that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We need to hear James say this to to us. He said this to this original audience back in the day, but we're privileged to hear these words from him again some 2,000 years later. The one who looks, let's put it like this, if you look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the gospel defined by Jesus, his instruction on being human, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So let's just pause and ask ourselves this question. When it comes to the teachings of Jesus, am I a hearer who forgets or a doer who acts? If you were to think about your life over this last week, over this last month, over this last year, would you describe yourself as someone who hears the teaching of Jesus but forgets? Or one who hears the teaching of Jesus and acts upon it. There's this really interesting place in the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures when Ezekiel, who was ministering to to exiles who've been carried off into captivity, he was given the very difficult charge of, of speaking to them to try to awaken their conscience to figure out why it was that their nation had deteriorated to this point where it was just so easy for people to carry them off into exile. Their moral corruption caused them to lose all sense of of purpose and and moral compass. And so God says to Ezekiel these words. I think you'll find them really interesting. He says, My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. In other words, Ezekiel went to, to speak to these people, to try to call them back to the ways of the Lord. And they were gathering, they were listening, but God says they have no intention of putting into practice what you're saying because their hearts are 
they're greedy for unjust gain. They're still, even in a captivity, oppressing one another. And then God continues and says, Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Evidently, Ezekiel was a man who had an eloquent gift. In fact, it would have been amazing to sit and listen to him because it would be like listening to a love song with a beautiful voice. It would be like hearing someone play an instrument well. He was... He was an orator, and they're coming, and they're listening. But God says, they do not put into practice what you say. My friends, Jesus spoke much more eloquently, much more forcefully. If there was ever anyone who spoke like a love song, if there was ever anyone who, when he spoke, it was like hearing someone play an instrument well, it was Jesus. What would it be like to sit at his feet and hear him speak? People who did said he spoke like no one else. He spoke as one who had authority, and they clamored to him. But as we know, so many people rejected him. And I wonder, in our own day and age, how many people hear the words of Jesus? They read their Bibles, they attend the church, they go to Bible studies. But does it actually transform their life? Do they become more like Jesus? James says, if we do become more like Jesus, if, if we are a doer who acts, then we will be blessed in doing what he says. So let me just make this important point. There is no automatic blessing in the mere hearing of the word of God. Rather, the blessing comes in the doing of the word. And don't get me wrong, it is an incredible blessing to be able to hear the teachings of Jesus. But there's no automatic blessing in our life if we just merely hear it, but don't actually put it into practice. There's this time when Jesus was traveling and he was teaching, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Mary was the most blessed of women. She was able to give birth to Jesus, to nurse him, to raise him, to teach him. And maybe this woman was like, ah, I wish I could have been that woman. (laughs) That woman was blessed. And Jesus responds by this. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It was incredibly blessed to be able to do what Mary did. In fact, Mary, when she received the news that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, said, from now on, all people will call me blessed. And and we do bless Mary. We are thankful for her. She was the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we love her. That would have been amazing. But Jesus says, you want to know what's more amazing? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. So let me apply this to our lives. It's the remaining time that we have together here. First point of application is this. Let's remember that Jesus was the ultimate doer of the word. I don't know about you and how you're experiencing this message so far, but I know even as I'm teaching you and I've had to prepare this week for it, I was just reminded of how many times I'm not a doer of the word, how many times I fall short of the teachings of Jesus, how I don't love people well, how sometimes my heart is cold toward God. And I can be really overcome 
with guilt. I can, I can be really discouraged by that. And I want us to leave room for whatever the Spirit of God might be communicating to us about how much we do follow Jesus. But even as we're taking a look at ourselves, let's take ten looks at Jesus, all right? Let's remember that Jesus was the ultimate doer of the Word of God. This is the way the book of Hebrews describes him. When Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. What if you and I every morning said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Or as we just sang, Speak, O Lord. Plant your word deep in me that, that it would bear fruit. Jesus was such a man full of love toward God and love toward others that he could ask in all seriousness this question before his most ardent opponents. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And there were crickets. They couldn't. They had to make up trumped-up charges and pay witnesses to give false testimony when Jesus was arrested. In fact, Jesus was so devoted in his obedience that it was said that when he was found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus realized that part of the plan of God was that he would take upon himself the sins of this world. They would be condemned in his body instead of the body of his followers. And so Jesus became obedient even to the point of death. And someone might cynically say, well, it doesn't look like Jesus was blessed being a doer of the word if he ended up dead. Well, the reason he ended up dead was because he had the sins of the world upon him. He, he was cursed in the place of people like you and me who don't love God with everything we've got, who don't love others well. But that wasn't the end of the story. That passage continues. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So my friends, as we even during this time together, realize how we don't perfectly love God and others. And we feel convicted about how, how we hear the word of God and sometimes don't do it. And sometimes we know what Jesus wants us to do and we intentionally go our own way. Let's remember that Jesus was the ultimate doer of the word of God. And he died in the place of people like you and me. And when we trust in him, when we give our, ourselves to him as sinners, he receives us. And grants us his righteousness, his perfect obedience, and we're clothed in the garments of salvation. So we stand in Christ as those who, who have perfectly obeyed. So let's remember that Jesus was the ultimate doer of the word. But let's take an inventory of our lives regarding obedience to Jesus. This is our second point of application. As we think about this, my dear friends who, who claim to follow Jesus... How well are we doing in our obedience to Jesus? You say, well, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> I'm listening to the instructions of the scriptures. Yes, you are, and I'm thankful that you're here. But I'm asking this question of myself and also of you. I shared a few weeks ago this quote by Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book called Eat This Book. He's talking about the scriptures and, and eating it, not physically eating it, but devouring it, devouring its message. And he said, Christians 
feed on Holy Scripture. This is what we do. This is what we're supposed to do. Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Scripture nourishes, nurtures, rather, the, the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into ourselves in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water given in Jesus' name, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration to the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. I love this quote because it's calling us not just simply to be hearers of the word, but people who assimilate it in such a way that it just inevitably works itself out in our lives in the way that we are in this world. And so the question is, my friends, how are you doing in hearing and assimilating the word of God? Some of you I know read the scriptures. Some of you do it daily. How are you doing in hearing and assimilating the word of God? Some of you are involved in in small group studies throughout the week. How are you doing in hearing and assimilating these words of Jesus? Many of you are faithful to come each and every Sunday. As we gather together and open this, up the scriptures, and I, and I have the wonderful opportunity to, to teach as clearly as I can the message that is contained for us that week. How are we doing at hearing those scriptures and assimilating them? I wonder if we could make this our prayer more and more. Lord, make me crave your word. I don't know how often you read the scriptures. I don't know how often things compute when we get together. But just at a deeper level, do you crave the teachings of Jesus? Is there a sense in which you just can't get enough of him? To the degree that that's true of you, praise God. But I think for all of us, (laughs) there are times when we do and there's, there's perhaps times when we don't. And what if when we find ourselves in those times when we don't, we just recognize that and call a spade a spade and ask the Lord to give us what we need, which is a craving for his word. And even beyond that, a desire to do it. If you read books on how to say the scriptures, they give all kinds of um, interesting questions to ask yourself when you, when you study them. For example, here's a, a sampling of them. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to believe? Is there an attitude to change? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a truth to believe? Is there something to praise God for? We can go on and on and on. Is there a person in my office that I need to to be more loving towards? Is there someone in my life I need to be more patient towards? Whatever it is that the teachings of Jesus direct us and guide us toward whenever we're encountering them, do we put them into practice? When someone says, I don't like all this talk about obedience. Obedience equals legalism. I just, I just want to live by grace. Have you heard some people say this? I have. I used to be one of those people. My wife and I, when we were in Texas A&M here, we were part of a group that um, was, was good in so many ways, but it inculcated a, a very legalistic attitude toward us. And we just kind of became those, those Christians who just kind of had a little scowl on their face because everybody wasn't doing it right. And then that translated into our lives that we're not doing it right. 
And so we had to try harder, and we just lost touch with grace. And so God graciously brought us into the life of some people who, who taught us that our standing with God does not depend on our performance, but on what Jesus has performed for us. And we began to live that freedom. And so we swung to the opposite side and just said, obedience is a dirty word. We don't have to obey. And we just swung to that opposite error. But we do have to obey. Not to earn salvation, but to flesh out the salvation that's been given to us. Jesus, at one point, just point blank asked his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I mean, Jesus does expect for us to live in light of his teaching. According to Jesus, obedience is not a dirty word, but a way of displaying our loyalty to him. We've talked about how discipleship is a a lifelong apprenticeship with Jesus in a new way of being human. We follow Jesus because we believe the way that he has, te- he has taught, the way he teaches us, is the best way to live. It may be difficult. It may be challenging. It may be stretching us. But it is the best way to live. And we don't necessarily follow Jesus because he makes life better. But we follow him because he is better than life. And he makes us better at living life. And so, my friends, let's remember that Jesus was the ultimate doer of the word. Let's take inventory of our lives regarding our obedience to Jesus. And here's the third and final point. Let's bear the good fruit of obedience in our lives. Jesus himself said these words, whoever abides in me, that is, whoever lives in him, whoever is connected to him, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says, you want to know those who are my disciples? They don't simply hear my words, but they do them and they bear fruit. And this may close with this illustration. Do you remember the story about this fellow who was an atheist activist with failing vision who gets some help by Christians to pay for his medical bills? Patrick Green had planned to sue Henderson County, Texas, unless it removed the nativity scene from a courthouse lawn but dropped his threats when he began losing his vision. He was one of these angry atheists who was on the hunt, and Christians had got the courthouse to put up this nativity scene celebrating the birth of Jesus, and he was mad about it. And so he had planned to sue the county when all of a sudden he began losing his sight. I imagine there's some people who call themselves followers of Jesus who go, that's exactly what you deserve. It's coming to you. But, fortunately, there are other Christians who responded differently. There are local Christians who heard about his condition and raised money to help him cover his mounting medical costs. This man who positioned himself as an enemy of Christians, and who Christians could, you know, in one sense, write him off as their enemy, decided to actually put Jesus' command to love your enemies into practice. And so they began raising money to, uh, to help him cover his, his costs. And this is what Patrick said. We didn't expect this kind of treatment from these Christians because most Christians don't act this way. Ouch. But because of the fact that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, these people are acting like real Christians. Both my wife and I love them for that. Because they are actually putting their actions where their beliefs are. No Christian has 
ever acted like this way the entire time we've been married. These are the first actual Christians we have ever met in our lives. Can you imagine that? Whenever I've talked with um, folks who are avowed atheists, and I've dug a little deeper, there's almost always a story of Christians treating them badly. There's almost always a story of the church abusing or the church trashing the teachings of Jesus by wrapping it in, in legalism. But here was a man who experienced kindness and sacrificial love from Christians, and he's blown away by it. He loves, this guy who used to hate Christians actually loves these Christians he's met. And he says these are actually the first real Christians that they've encountered in their entire lives. One person was asked, why did you help this man out? And he said, it was one of those things I didn't have to think about. I didn't have to pray about it. Jesus already commanded us to do it, and so I just did it. In other words, he was not just a hearer of the words of Jesus, but a doer. The Mercy Hill Church, may you be doers of the words of Jesus and not simply hearers. Doers who don't have to think about it, who don't have to pray about it, but who simply do it because Jesus commands us to do it. May we live that new way of being human that Jesus has not only blazoned for us, but calls us to follow in his steps.